0: Heavenly Father, we do indeed praise you. We praise you for your great goodness, for your rich mercy, for your perfect righteousness. We thank you that you have given us all things, and it is our privilege, it is our pleasure to offer back to you a small portion of what you have first given to us. Lord, we pray that you would use it for the good of your church, the extension of your kingdom, and for the glory of your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, if you will remain standing, uh, it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Lawrence O'Donnell to our pulpit. Good morning, it's a delight to be here with you. I'm going to ask you to open up your Bible to two places this morning, Exodus chapter 32, Exodus 32, and then if you'll stick a finger also in the Gospel of John chapter 17. Our scripture reading will be from Exodus 32, and then I'm also going to read just one verse from John 17, verse 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offering and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. And now John 17, just in verse number nine. and Jesus says these words, verse nine. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Would you pray with me? Father, as we already heard from Isaiah, you know what we're going to ask for before we even open our mouths. We, your people, come before you, our shepherd, and we ask for your blessing on your word. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Help us to see your resurrected and exalted Son, Jesus Christ, and his ministry for us even today. We pray for this blessing in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Moses is gone. We don't know what he's doing, and we don't even think he's coming back. It's with these impatient presumptions that Israel prepared herself for what the text calls her great sin, which, by the way, is is not a common term. This is something to highlight what a bad deal this was in verse 30. When the people of Israel saw that Moses lingered on God's holy mountain, Well, you might think that, uh, given all of the mighty acts of redemption through Moses, the the whole plagues, the deliverance through the Red Sea, you would think, given all that, that the people would wait patiently for God's appointed mediator to come back from the mountain and deliver God's message. Just before Moses had ascended the mount, the people had confirmed their covenant oath several times, Uh, They said this in chapter 24, verse 7, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. But, an anxious 40 days and 40 nights after Moses had gone up the mountain uh, proved otherwise. Here, the first instinct of God's stiff-necked people was mutiny. "'Up, make us gods who shall go before us!' they cried out in verse 1. And it's with no small amount of irony that Aaron complies with the people's request and uses their Egyptian gold to build them an Egyptian-like idol. And then once they have this golden god, the people behave uh, like a bunch of drunken Egyptians. It says in verse 6, "'They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play.'" Yes, Moses was gone, but he certainly wasn't dead, and he wasn't up on the mountain on vacation. Instead, we find Moses on the mountain doing one of his most important duties as God's appointed mediator. Being the advocate and the, and the intercessor for God's people. Now, as we, we watch this story unfold, we can't help but think, man, if the people had only known what Moses was doing on that mountain, He was there for them. He was receiving God's holy law for them. And like the text says, he was going to bring God's blessing to them. And in fact, even after the people had started doing their thing down below and God had reported to Moses what was going on, Moses doesn't just give up. He continues working for God's people. When God announces uh, his just grand punishment on this great sin, Moses immediately intercedes. He implored the Lord his God, it says in verse 11, to relent from this awful wrath and to remember his merciful covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. In verse 13, we read, even more than this, Moses goes down and then he goes back up on the mountain a second time. But, Since the people couldn't see Moses with their eyes, they broke their covenant with God and they placed their faith instead in something that they could see. A golden calf. Now even though a lot has changed between Moses' day and ours regarding how God relates to his people, there's at least two aspects of our Christian lives that are very similar to the challenges that Israel faced here in Exodus 32. And the first one's real obvious. Jesus is gone. And he's been gone quite a bit longer than 40 days and 40 nights. Why, why is it that Jesus didn't stay with us on earth? How is it better for us that Jesus left to be with the Father like he said it would when he was speaking in John 16. What in the world is Jesus doing up in heaven anyway? Is he enjoying a nice vacation? Floating on the clouds, have his feet up, strumming a harp type thing. What difference does it make for me and for you what Jesus is doing now in heaven? Well, the second way we relate to israel here is also all too obvious we too sin just like israel and maybe even worse than israel uh, we sin in the teeth of god's most glorious grand act of redemption sending his own son i mean this was a big one here in exodus 32 and the text calls it a great sin but we also commit great sins we sin daily. We sin in our attitudes and our thoughts and our deeds. And sometimes, like the psalm says, they go over our heads and they stink. But there's a big difference between Moses' day and ours. And that's this. That's it's the one thing I want you to see in this text. And it's why I had you read John 17, 9. I want to focus on this one thought. And that's this. Not the mere man Moses. But the God man, Jesus Christ, is praying for you. This difference is illustrated briefly during Jesus' earthly ministry in an event that calls to mind Israel's great sin in Exodus 32. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when he foretold Peter's denial in the Gospels? In Luke, in Luke 22, Verse 31, uh, (coughs) Luke writes this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And this is Jesus speaking. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now note the difference here. Peter's great sin... His denying the Lord Jesus is not met with a wilderness plague, but with great grace and a powerful prayer. What Jesus did for Peter in his earthly ministry, he does for us now in an even more excellent way during his exaltation. That's why I want to focus our attention on Jesus' heavenly intercession by looking at his prayer in John 17, verse 9. Now, just before he would be betrayed by Judas, another kind of great sin moment, Jesus lifts up his eyes to his Father's heavenly throne, and he interceded for his disciples. And he said, I am praying for them. He didn't say, I have prayed or I will pray, but I am praying. Now, keep this present tense in mind as we look at some scriptures to compare, to unpack the meaning of what Jesus is saying here in this this short text. The whole of Jesus' prayer in John 17 is intercessory. in, In this text, we see Jesus as the great high priest, praying for his disciples and for all those who would believe in the gospel that the disciples proclaimed. So it's intercessory, but it's also proleptic, which is a fancy way to say it's a preview of Jesus' priestly ministry as the exalted son during the time of his humiliation or his time on earth. Kind of like the glimpse of the Lord's heavenly glory that was given to Moses just before God called him up to the mountain uh, that we read about in Exodus 24, Jesus' prayer here in John 17, it gives a glimpse into the heavenly throne room to show us what he's doing uh, there while we wait for his return here. Now that Christ does... Pray for his people from his heavenly throne is the plain teaching of Scripture. It's not disputed. It's easy to see. And I just want to take you to a few places. Paul states explicitly in Romans 8, verse 34, both where Christ is and what he's doing there. So listen to what Paul writes. This is Romans 8. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who is, indeed, interceding for us. Now, the the writer of the Hebrews adds this, in Hebrews 7, verse 25. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is what he's doing. Christ in heaven is interceding for his people. Now, if you'll excuse a Presbyterian moment for me, I want to mention the larger catechism here. It's Christ in heaven doing his work is why the larger catechism in question 54 treats Christ's intercession as part of his heavenly session or his heavenly rule over all things. And then the next question Question 55, which, by the way, is nicely printed in the bulletin here. I'm going to make reference to it if you want to follow along. It's on the last page of the bulletin. This question asks this in the larger catechism. How? How does Christ make intercession? And it's in unfolding these answers that we find a great contrast between Moses and what he's doing as the earthly temporary mediator for God's people in the time of the Old Covenant, and Jesus, and what we get a glimpse in John seventeen nine of what he's doing for his people now in heaven. So I want to briefly walk through the parts of this answer to unpack this question. How does Christ make intercession? Look with me at the first bit there. So Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature, Continually before the Father in heaven. Now, Moses intercedes for Israel occasionally. He goes up the mountain, he goes back down, he goes back up the mountain. And he goes to the place where the Lord had only descended temporarily for a temporary purpose. But the Lord Jesus Christ, after he condescended to take on our flesh, Having fulfilled the entirety of the law's demands with his obedient life and his obedient death and his powerful resurrection, he ascended not to any dusty mountain, but into heaven itself. And it's from there that he continually intercedes on behalf of his people in the Father's immediate presence. Now, Christ doesn't go to heaven uh, willy-nilly to pop up his feet with no real purpose and to watch some TV until the Father says, okay, it's time to go back. No, he's there doing work for us. Look, Look at the next bit of the answer here. So appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers. If you remember, in our reading, God rejected Moses' offer to give his own life as an atonement for Israel's sin. And more than that, after the great sin, Moses had to lead the people out for another ironic Egyptian-like punishment. He had to follow behind the angel of the Lord to do that. But here's the difference. Christ Jesus himself made purification for our sins. He himself satisfied God's wrath against the sin of his people, and he sat down at the Lord's right hand. This is why at the opening of his great prayer in John 17, Jesus prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's done. If you remember Moses' second prayer in our story, he he goes back and says, perhaps I can make atonement. This perhaps from Moses, it gives way to Jesus' cry on the cross. It's finished. It's done. There's no more perhaps about it. The work of redemption wasn't given to Moses or any of the other prophets. Jesus accomplished all of it. He drank the cup of wrath down to its very dregs. There's no need to lead the people back out for another desert-like punishment. Because Jesus did it all, it gives him the grounds to say, I am praying for them. I, me, I did it. It's because Jesus merited the salvation For his people, that gives him the prerogative to apply all his benefits to them, and he does it in his prayers for them. Moses didn't earn anything for God's people, he didn't give any benefits out of his supply, whatever that would have been, uh, to God's people. Jesus accomplishes everything. For his people. And he applies all of his benefits to them. You could say it like this. Jesus not only lived for you. And died for you. And rose from the dead for you. All things that we rightly remember all the time. But he also ascended into heaven for you. He sat down at God's right hand for you. And from his heavenly throne, he prays for you. And it's by and in and with these prayers that he dispenses all of the benefits of salvation to you in his spirit. Now, why am I talking about benefits? Well, because the next part of the answer in the larger catechism goes into what are these benefits? What are you talking about? Okay, look, look with me at the next part of the answer here. So have it applied to all believers. And here's the first one. Answering all accusations against them. Answering all accusations against them. Now think of Moses again. Look, back on the mountain, Moses couldn't answer any of the Lord's accusations against Israel's great sin. The best he could do was appeal to the Lord's mercy. Remember your covenant faithfulness, Lord, is what Moses prayed. Ah. But when we sin, as uh, <coughs> excuse me, John writes to us 1 John 2, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. His feet are planted on the Father's throne. And he's like the lawyer of lawyers who has never lost a case. And he has home court advantage. He can't lose a case for all his answers against justice. All the accusations are answered in full by his own life. Paul says it like this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He writes in Romans 8. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And again, more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Not even Satan. Nothing. No man, not your own sins, past, present, or future, Nothing can undermine the power of Christ's heavenly intercession for us. I will look with me at the second benefit that the larger catechism lists here. The next one goes like this So answering all accusations and procuring for them a quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings. Now, we've already hinted at this, but look, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not all that different than Moses' stiff-necked people. Even though we believe the gospel, we sin daily against God's holy law. Maybe Sometimes our sins appear in more respectable forms. Maybe we're not building golden gods. I hope we're not. That's pretty weird. Uh, But our sins are idolatry, just the same, and they rise up against us just the same. When we sin against God, or our spouses, or our children, or our co-workers, or our church, or our church leaders, we have a problem Our conscience won't let us off the hook. Something inside happens, and our hearts can't find rest. This is just obvious, but it's all throughout Scripture. Stuff happens. Think of Cain. Was his conscience quiet when the Lord asked him, Hey, where is your brother Abel? Or think of Achan. You think his heart was at rest when he hid the devoted things under his tent? And even Moses, the character from our story, you think he could sleep well at night after he murdered the Egyptian? Or David, great King David, was he full of joy in the Holy Spirit after murdering Uriah in order to satisfy his own burning lust for Bathsheba? Now, think of yourself. Every time you sin, you've got a problem. Your conscience talks to you. Sometimes you feel it right away. If you just explode in anger, maybe. You realize immediately, man, that was wrong. I should have done that. Or you choose to go satisfy some lust. And you know when you do that, the satisfaction, it's always mixed. There's always guilt And shame mixed with that, choosing to give in, to do something you know you shouldn't do, but you did it. So how do we find rest? How do we get this benefit, quiet of conscience, in the face of daily failings? Well, we can't. And certainly Moses can't. Only the Lord Jesus can, the exalted, resurrected, and ascended Christ. Only he has the power to give it. The writer of the Hebrews gives the logic that applies here in a contrast that he draws between Moses' day and ours in Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 13. He writes the Old Covenant like this. "You have the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When there's a breach of God's law, The only solution to the loud cry of the guilty conscience that comes is to repair the breach. There's no other way to do it. You can't ignore it. You can't run away from it. It comes back. Well, how do you repair the breach? Well, when the just demands of the law are fulfilled, the conscience has no more grounds to speak out. The blood of Christ, which he gave for us, it's the only ground on which we can stand to silence our guilty conscience. And in Jesus' prayers for us, we find him commanding our conscience to be still, just like he commanded the wind and the waves to obey him. Now, if this benefit, if it were only a one-time deal, like, maybe, you know, if you go on a Hajj, if you're a Muslim and you go through the whole week long thing at the end, your sins are pronounced forgiven up until that point. Now, if that were just a one time deal that Jesus gave us, that would be awesome, but still, man, I sin a lot. That's not enough. But remember that present tense in Jesus' prayer I am. Praying for them. Jesus prayers his intercession for us. It's active and it's ongoing and it's powerful. You know, that thing that you feel when you choose to sin and you get into sins, sometimes sins compound into other sins and it gets pretty ugly. And there's a power there and it feels like uh, whether it's shame or guilt You you get stuck, and you feel like you're in a chokehold. Well, the perspective that the scriptures give us say that that power—it's a caricature of power. Your sin and your guilt is no match for the omnipotent Son, His once-for-all sacrifice, and His heavenly prayers. They're powerful. All right, moving on to the next benefit listed here. So after notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace. Now, you've got to understand this. Jesus doesn't just pray for you merely that your conscience may be quieted for your own sake. He does so also. To open up the doors of the heavenly throne room to you, and by means of your prayers, to draw you up to where he is, seated at the Father's right hand. This is an amazing grace, and don't take my word for it, it's too amazing. It sounds crazy. The writer of the Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 15. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now here it is. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The people of Israel... The reason why Moses was up on the mountain is they were too freaked out. They said, no, Moses, we don't want to talk to that thundering, uh, holy God. You go talk to him for us. And here we have an invitation to the throne of thrones. This place of terrible judgment and fear and dread is for us a throne of mercy and grace. And when this throne is approached humbly And frequently, and even as the the text here says, boldly. Boldly, why? Well, because our elder brother, who is seated on this very throne, invites us into his presence and even prays for us from there. This throne is a place of intimate fellowship with God and a place of mighty power. It's the place to do battle against that caricature power of sin that you feel. Take it to the throne room. And just like Moses' mountain, it's here. This is the place where God promised to meet with us. He asks us to come meet with him here. And it's a place where we may implore the Lord in the name of Christ for anything as Jesus taught us to pray in the Gospels. We would be fools to not make use of this great benefit early and often. Fathers, are you leading your family into this throne room together? If you want intimacy with God, start here. We've got to move on to the the last benefit listed here. So access with boldness to the throne of grace, and then this last one, and acceptance of their persons and services. Persons and services. What does this mean? Jesus' prayers for his people, they're comprehensive in scope. Sure, he prays about your sins, but that's not the only thing. It's bigger than that. Jesus' prayers guarantee God's acceptance of who you are <coughs> Excuse me, <coughs> before God, who you are or your person, and what you do for God or your services. Now, just briefly, with respect to your person, maybe you could say it like this. Jesus' prayers for you go from the top of your head down to the very depths of your soul. Because of Christ's intercession, God accepts you as you. All warts and all. God accepts you when your faith is burning hot, Or when it's not. God accepts you whether you're young and in full of the vitality of youth. Or whether you're old and not so full of the vitality of youth. Because of Jesus' intercession, God, the Father, accepts you when others are ashamed of you. Maybe even when you're ashamed of yourself. The same God who created you, created this world that you live in, breathed life into you, now in Christ prays for you, lifts up your downcast soul into the heavenly places, adorns you with the robes of righteousness, and tells you in Christ's prayers for you, Welcome to my family, welcome. Well, Jesus praying for us means that we're not only accepted for who we are, but also for what we do. Our loving service to our King. Our discharging the, the duties that he, God gives us all in our different callings. Our offering up of ourselves as living sacrifices, like Paul says in Romans 12. All our good works. They are truly good. Not because of anything good in us. Look, on our own, our works are nothing but polluted garments, like Isaiah says in Isaiah 64. But because Jesus prays for us, the Father accepts in, the Father delights in, and he even rewards our good works. The very works that he himself prepared for us. For we are his workmanship, says Paul in Ephesians 2.10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Father created you to glorify Him in your service to Him, and the Son prays for you so that your service is acceptable in the Father's sight. that the exalted Christ does indeed continually pray for all his people. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. And it's also a precious, precious truth. It reveals to us the very heart of the gospel. You see here in Jesus' prayers God's super grace. To use a term from Paul. Would that we all together, in in our various callings, whether you're a father, a student, a mother, a child, we all can make use of this uh, most precious blessing. Uh, Will you pray with me as we pray for God's blessing on his word? Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to see in your word Christ praying for us even now. Will you seal this truth to our hearts today? Will you challenge us by it and help us to live out the duties implied in these great gospel truths? Help us to love one another more, we pray, even today. In Jesus' name, amen.